Fantastic. All right, a couple of um, uh, just family business. Um, this Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m., some of you uh, have, have known uh, Vinette Heyman. She passed away recently, and we're going to have a memorial service for her. Again, that's this Wednesday evening here at the church, 6.30 p.m. There'll be a, a dessert coffee reception following uh, the service at 7.30 p.m. Uh, you are all welcome to be a part of that. Um, also, uh, we are excited to let you all know and to anticipate God working through Leah Castle as she has been officially voted in as our next kids ministry director. Super excited about that. Can't wait to partner with her in ministry. She's jazzed as well. She's going to be here this Saturday. So another reason for you to be here is to meet her and her family and to encourage them to hear a little bit more about who they are. And then she she will be officially starting on August 3rd and working with Pastor Aaron in preparing for this upcoming school year. So again, just praise God for how he's worked in that and through that. And then the last thing I want to mention is on August 21st. August 21st, I know that's a little ways off. It's hard for us. You know, every year, don't we all commit to resting? I'm going to rest this summer. I'm going to soak it all in. And then we all are like at the end of the summer with our hair blown back being like, what just happened, right? Well, I get it, but I want you to put August 21st on your calendars because that's going to be a great time for us as a church to come together. We're going to, after the service, so that's a Sunday, after the service, we're going to be meeting again at Silver Lake, right there at the shelter where the beach is, and we're going to have a picnic together, just fellowship with one another, and then we're going to also have lake baptisms. We already have a few people that are expressing interest to be baptized, but if that's something that you've ever thought about, if it's something you've ever wondered about, if it's something that maybe you've hesitated pulling the trigger on, and, and you want to just engage in that kind of conversation, I would love to talk to you about why this is such a critical step. So August 21st, don't uh, miss out on that. Oh, and by the way, that was beautiful, that worship song. Thank you so much. Praise God. That was awesome. Yeah, he gave me goosebumps. And I don't get goosebumps easy. All right. What kind of shopper are you? Just think about that. Process that for a second. What kind of shopper are you? Are you an impulse shopper? Um, I know there's one person in this room who is the furthest thing from an impulse shopper. Uh, but if you're an impulse shopper, I can resonate a little bit with you. All right, so there are times when I go in. So here's the deal. My wife, when she grocery shops, she considers prices. That's a good thing. When I grocery shop, if I see Oreos, I get the Oreos. I don't necessarily pay attention to the price of the Oreos. If we need toilet paper, I'll get the toilet paper that feels the nicest. I won't necessarily care about the price. What kind of shopper are you? Consider this statistic according to Precinct. Only 60%, 60%, so pretty close to half of consumers consider pricing as the very first criteria on their buying decision. People don't often 
count the cost in small ways and in big ways. Not just in financial aspects, but people don't often count the cost financially. Consider that the average American has four credit cards, and the average debt is about $90,000. We struggle with counting the cost. I want you to take your Bibles, if you brought your Bibles with you, which, by the way, if you don't have one of these and if it's not something you're engaging with in a physical way, please, please invest in doing that. This is, this is a profound and necessary instrument in our life. Um, but if you don't have your Bibles, don't feel bad. We have some in the pews in front of you. You can grab that, um, and it will be on the screen. But Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, one of the reasons why having your Bibles when we're together here is sometimes I reference things that we've already read, and if you have your Bibles, you're able to go back and kind of look at that as we engage. Just something to keep in mind. But Acts 17, as you're turning there, I want to just, I just want to talk a little bit about setting the stage. Uh, we have been going through this series 50 weeks. We are committing to going through the book of Acts. This is a, a New Testament book following the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk about Jesus' ministry on earth, and then his death and resurrection, and then Acts is the story part two. It's part two of the story. It is the church. We are a part, two, a part of part two. We've talked about that. But when we consider what it means to count the cost, not only the aspects of daily living, but much more importantly, to one's decision to follow Christ, what are we talking about? Now, the early church in the first 16 chapters, we've seen uh, Christianity just explode in the then known world. First, it began in Jerusalem, right? And then it began to upset the apple cart there where thousands of people were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And then it begins to spread to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And again, many Jews are receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then it starts going into all these Gentile lands. What is a Gentile? A Gentile is basically someone who's not a Jew. And then all these Gentiles are receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In comes Paul. He is specifically ministering to non-Jews and seeing their lives change. And then in Acts 16, we looked at this amazing story where Paul and Silas, they were in Philippi. They were preaching the gospel, and they did something that kind of riled people up. It got them all into a tizzy, and so what did they do? They arrested Paul and Silas, and they tortured them, and then they were set free. Christianity was upsetting the apple cart. It was just turning things upside down. It was threatening, it challenging social and, and uh, 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 mental and spiritual norms that things people were taking for granted. It was saying, love others. It was saying, it was saying uh, set yourself aside and focus instead on others and follow Jesus Christ. And we would see again here in Acts 17 
that Paul and Silas, in their missionary journeys to these people groups that were outside of anything that anybody had anticipated back when Christianity first began to spread, they are now in Thessalonica, and we see them experiencing persecution yet again. In Acts 17, verse 1, and going through verse 9, it says this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath, Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Quote, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters. I love that, by the way. They rounded up some bad characters. From the marketplace, they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus, And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. That's the passage that we're looking at here in the next handful of minutes together. So first thing we're going to do, as we typically do when we go through these passages, we're going to break it down. We're going to understand, get a foundation of these verses, verses 1 through 9. So the first thing we need to look at is verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. So where are we exactly? I think it's helpful to look at maps. So take a look at this map. So you can see here where Jerusalem is on the far right, lower right. They had traveled up to Antioch, and then they had made their way through Troas, and then Philippi was where they were in Acts 16, and now they are in Thessalonica. We are in what is now modern-day Europe. Verse 2 of 17, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This was Paul's custom. So even that far outside of Jerusalem, there were Jews who were scattered. Remember the persecution that took place earlier in Acts? That persecution that caused not only Christians to scatter, but Jews themselves, long even before that, had scattered to all different regions of the then known world. 
And Paul's custom, even though his mission was to, was to uh, tell Gentiles, non-Jews, about Jesus and to see their lives change, his custom was when he went into a new city is to find the synagogue. And remember, the synagogue was the place where Jews met. There had to be at least 10 men present. If that was the case, regardless of the location, the physical location, that was considered the synagogue. He would find that place, and he would spend time first. Before he would begin ministering to Gentiles, he would spend time pointing to the Messiah who is from the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is littered with allusions and prophetic messages of the Messiah who then becomes realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul would go and he'd say, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. In verse 3, it says he was explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And then in verse 4, it says, Some of the Jews were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This was Paul's strategy. He would go into the synagogue. He would engage with Jews. He would point to the Messiah. And then through that, he would then begin engaging with Gentiles, showing them Jesus Christ. And, and then he saw fruit from that ministry, did he not? Some Jews received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and then many Gentiles, many Greeks, received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as did some prominent women. And then in verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed the mob, and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So Paul's ministry was so affected effective that not only were some Jews and, and a lot of Gentiles and some prominent women, not only did uh, these people experience Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but it riled or it brought to the attention other Jews who were offended and jealous about this reality. Why would they be jealous? They, would, they were jealous because, because uh, Jesus... And, 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 and the, the truth of Scripture, which at that time was the Old Testament that we know today, many Jews saw that as theirs and theirs alone. So how dare these, these non-Jews claim the truth of God for themselves? But yet, that's what Jesus came out to do. So these jealous Jews decided to make trouble. But here was the problem. They didn't have sufficient grounds to bring Paul and Silas before the city officials. So what did they do? They hired a group of thugs, these bad people, to cause a riot. And then their plan was to pin that on Paul and Silas and be able to say to the, uh, to the uh, local authorities, you see, this is what happens. Wherever they go, they cause all this trouble, and now they're doing it here. Do something about it. Take care of these two these two guys. And so they had to find Paul and Silas, these, these accusers, in order to bring them before the people and the authorities, but they couldn't find Paul and Silas. Instead, they went to Jason's house. Who in the world is Jason? 
This is the first time we hear about Jason, and it's the last time we'll hear about Jason. What had happened here is that this, this, this church that has just begun, that means that Jews and, and Gentiles have just received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as a result, they began to form a church within those city limits of Thessalonica. And where did they meet? Jason's house. Jason's house was the place. Now, if they knew to go to Jason's house, was that a secret? No. Everybody knew. They knew exactly where they could find Paul and Silas. But in the absence of Paul and Silas, they bring Jason out into the street. In verse 6, but when they did not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And then in verses 7 through 9, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. These two guys who are causing trouble all over, they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus, and when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And they made Jason and the others post bond, and then they let them go. This sounds eerily familiar, does it not? If you can't, if you can't put your finger on it immediately, maybe this will help remind you in chapter 23 of Luke then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Who's him? Jesus. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. This is nothing new. This was the same argument they had been using for, for, for decades. Now, understandably, because Paul and Silas, they, you know, they get the spotlight, get center stage, understandably, it's easy to focus on them, but actually, the key to this passage is not Paul and Silas, it's Jason. Imagine Jason being pulled out of his home and, and, and brought out in front of the authorities and all the people there. Do you think Jason was surprised by what he was experiencing? Do you think they pulled Jason out in front of everybody? And Jason, a new believer in Jesus Christ, he had just given his life to Jesus. He has now kind of become the pastor of this church. He's now standing accused in front of all these people. Do you think Jason in that moment was saying, wait a second, I don't remember this being in the list of things I signed up for? No way. Keep in mind that right before this, Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. Surely Jason knew exactly what this meant. Surely Jason, as he stood in front of all these people and, and received these accusations, was saying to himself, yeah, this is what I signed up for. And why? Why is that the case? Well, Paul explains it perfectly in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says, for we are, that is a follower of Jesus, we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. 
To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. So what does it mean to count the cost? Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives us a definition that is highly uncomfortable. In verse 25, it's, he says, it says that large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, as I bring this to a close, what's the word there that is uncomfortable? Hate. Whoa, wait a second. You mean if I follow Jesus, I have to hate the people that mean the most to me? That's not at all what Jesus is saying. This is one of those examples when translation isn't helpful. I mean, you look at a new version or a different version of Scripture, the New Living Translation. This is what that verse says. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word missio. I've talked about this before. That word means to love less. Here, here is what Jesus is saying. Your love and commitment to me should be so great. It should be so vast that any love you have for anyone, for, for, for family, for, for work, for your belongings, for your politics, for your country, for your values, your dreams, they should pale in comparison. It should seem like you hate those things because your love for me is so great in comparison to everything else. Practically everyone who makes the decision to give their life to Jesus and follow him does so with the intention to live their life fully and solely committed to him. But as time passes, commitment fades. So counting the cost, it's like getting into a pool. I, I, we have a pool, my family and I do, and I tell you, no matter how much I try to heat that pool, my family complains about it being too cold. And when you walk up to a pool and you know, you know that getting into that water is going to produce a certain level of shock, many of us will walk up to that pool and we'll, we'll tap our toe in the water. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how do we, how do we approach the pool? Well, we, we go down the steps. Okay, I can handle that. We go down a little bit more, right? And when does it really become an issue? When you get about this high, right? Then you're like, okay, that's about good. That's uh, all right. Got into the pool, everybody. Counting the cost is diving in. It is diving in completely, fully. Jesus wants followers of Jesus to be sopping wet. When you get out of the pool, there is no, no question as to where you've been. 
Everything about you reveals that you, that you drenched yourself, submerged yourself. That should be what it is for us. That we don't tip our toe in and see if, if oh, that's, uh, maybe, maybe. I'll try going a little further. Oh, okay, all right. Well, that got a little uncomfortable. Um, well, God tells me to, to give him my all, so I'm going to go up to, my, up to my waist. Okay, all right. I think that that's good. Jesus is going to like that. Nope. It's diving in. It is committing. It is realizing that the only way to, to do this Jesus thing is to do it all the way. So that everybody sees and recognizes who you belong to. When they see that, they're going to respond one of two ways. They're going to be pleased because they're looking and wanting the hope that you have, that you can share with them, or, or they're not going to like you dripping water all over the place. And it's not going to be comfortable. Matt Papa, he's a Christian artist, and he wrote a song called Stay Away From Jesus. And these are the lyrics as the worship band comes out. You won't ever hear this song on Christian radio because the Jesus that I serve is not safe. He'll say, take your cross and die, so if you want a comfy life, stay away from Jesus. He says, narrow is the gate, and hard is the way. Hate the ones you love and love the ones you hate. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. But if your works are good enough, stay away from Jesus. He says, be either hot or cold. You can't serve God and gold. Indifference is the road that leads to hell. So if you're happy in your stuff, and 10% is enough, then stay away from Jesus. He says, come follow me. Lose your life and be free. You must die to believe like a child. Come and see. He draws every line in love. He is good and he is just. And the words he speaks are meant to set you free. But... If you think you are the way and in control you have to stay, then stay away from Jesus. Jesus wants us to be sopping wet Jesus followers who have fully dove in. I pray that that's our commitment as well. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for our time together here today. And I pray that these words, Lord, this example that we see in Acts 17 and then the, the definition that you've given in Luke 14 of what it means to truly be a disciple, to, to count the cost, to follow you, to dive in completely, to not dip our toes in, to not see what it feels like, but to commit fully I pray, Lord, that that would be uncomfortable for us because it means that we don't have control. 
And it means if we don't have control, then we've given complete control to you. And we go where you go. And we do what you want us to do. And we say what you want us to say. I pray, Father, that the word Christian would not be an adjective in our lives. That we wouldn't use Christian as as describing ourselves as a Christian parent or, or a Christian American. Lord, that we would identify ourselves solely and completely by Jesus and the cross. And that your love for us and your call for us to reveal you to the world would be how we define ourselves completely. We pray this in your name. As we do at the end of each service in the series, we say this together. Please say this out loud with me. We are the church. We have received power from the Holy Spirit. We are Jesus' witness to the world. We will give the love of Jesus to each other, to our community, and to the ends of the earth because we are the church. Amen, amen. Thank you so much. Hope to see you and your family this Saturday. God bless.